What's going on, everybody? Welcome to a special episode of the Dissect the Film podcast, where we're doing something that we don't normally do, but, uh, you know, when someone reaches out, I, I can't say no. So we have two special guests on tonight. One is the writer of the, new, the newest Shudder movie, Spoonful of Sugar. And the other is a co-host or host, along with the writer, uh, on a podcast called Pitch. We have Leah St. Marie and Angel Murphy. Welcome in. Hi. Hey, thanks so much for having us. Absolutely. Thank yeah, you thank for, you. Thank you for reaching out. It's 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 awesome um, to when people want to be on our show, because I always look at our show like, why do people want to come on here? But <laughs> but I appreciate it. So we're not it. we're not the first people who've come on. No, no, I've, okay. I've had, I mean, we've had guests on the show, but you, you know, it, it's, uh, it's different when it's people that I've known for a while. And then it's like, you know, trying to get that, like people that I'm just, I'm just meeting you guys. So it's, I'm yeah. a nervous wreck, but I'm going to try to get through this without it showing. But thank Angel you. Angel makes me nervous all the time. So <laughs> you're fine. Well, I make myself nervous. So Perfect. maybe it's just me, but we're all affected. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> so before we get into spoonful of sugar and the podcast why don't you guys just introduce yourself and tell everybody what you guys do sure leah you go first well thank you so my background is in investigative journalism i worked at the innocence institute at point park university along with bill mushi and we helped exonerate wrongfully convicted individuals and i did that on purpose i got my master's degree in journalism so i could be a better writer wow I should have gone first because I'm not nearly that impressive. <laughs> <laughs> I've done nothing for anybody. I've, no one's been exonerated based on my past. Uh, I started in this industry as as talent, so as as like an actor. Um, before that, I was a musician. Um, I have I play the saxophone. Um, I play the flute. Um, and then uh, over the years, I just always had my eye on directing stuff and uh, writing and whatnot. So I've just kind of like self-educated myself about all the things indie filmmaking and have come to meet lovely, wildly educated, um, articulate people like Leah um, in my time here in L.A. and have been fortunate enough to be able to stick around and do some damage. Very cool. Very cool. Let's uh, let's start off by talking about your the podcast you both do together called Pitch. Yeah. And uh, just tell everybody what the podcast is all about and uh, how, how did it come to be? Sure. So Pitch is a two-part podcast. We have a premium feed, which has writers um, basically submitting an elevator pitch for a story they're working on. And then we ask those writers if it's a screenplay to send in the first three pages of their screenplay. And we get a group of actors together and basically like an old school radio play, we do a table read of it. And so if you're like a, a manager or you're an agent or you're a development executive or assistant and you're looking for stories or you're looking for writers and you are either wanting to find a way to listen to pitches in your car or you know, on your lunch break in a podcast form or um, you want to bring pitches to your boss if you're looking for writers, it's kind of packaged for people who are looking for writers and stories. In 20 to 25 minutes, they can listen to two to three pitches, two to three writers, and kind of get a sense for, oh, I like this person's story, and I like the way they write, and you know, the actors sounded great reading their pages. Let me ask them for uh, the rest of their script, I and mean, let me set up a meeting for them. Um, if you're not in the industry, it's kind of a cool insight into what the pitching process 
on a very small scale is because we don't have a lot of time to do big, you know, network pitches and whatnot. The, 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 the writers are just offering elevator pitches, which are basically in our, in our world, three minute pitches and summations of their story and a quick little writer introduction. So if you're just like a casual movie fan um, and you want to kind of have a look behind the curtain to see how stories get made, this part of it is often not discussed. You've got a producer or a director or a writer or even a studio person who's found a story and then they have to go verbally articulate what's in this script to someone and get them excited about it for that person to be like, yeah, let's let's take a look at that. You know, it's the pitching process. And there's no, at least to my knowledge, there's no catalog of story pitches. There's a lot of script pipelines, right? You, you have a short script, you have a feature script, submit it to us, we will get it to industry professionals, right? There's There's dozens of those in Hollywood and we don't have a way to, in my opinion, um, share pitches with the world in a similar way. Reading a script for a layperson is, it can be enjoyable, but you know, it's a specific format and it's a little bit of a different experience than reading like a novel or a graphic novel even. But listening to a pitch from a writer who's really crafted a great story, who's good at what they do is so amazing. And the first time and every single time I still hear a good pitch, it lights me up. And I'm like, that is why that person makes movies or TV shows. And so for the general public to not have access to that, I was like, well, if we can package something so industry insiders can find writers and then the average person can kind of like enjoy like story time in a way that they're not used to, we got to make that. And then the other part of the podcast is basically Lee and I sit down with industry insiders. We sit down with managers, producers. Um, I got a buddy who's nominated for an Academy Award coming on in a couple weeks. And we basically ask them, hey, what's your process like? What is your experience pitching your stories? How does pitching differ from like writing? You know, like, what do you think about? Um, where did you come from? We basically just go, go over like all the nuts and bolts for industry insiders and people who want to like learn about what the storytelling process is like from like, in, you know, Lee and I are both like indie filmmakers from like an indie filmmaker's point of view. But also we, we try to talk to studio people as well. So we get a full um, overview of like this portion, pitching and writing and pitching and pitching and directing and how that affects the stories that we're able to tell. Yeah, it, listening to your show, it, it just like opens my eyes, especially somebody who has like no knowledge, other than the fact I watch movies, I have no knowledge of like the behind the scenes and just listening to your show and I, I've listened to other podcasts that kind of dive into the thing, most of the things that most people don't understand or don't even think about when they watch a movie. It's so fascinating, but it also just shows like the fact that it's so hard to make a movie. Yeah. And so I think listening to your show and others that are um, giving us that deep dive into the behind the scenes, it makes me appreciate movie making more. Like I'm not just, super cynical like if i don't like a movie i'm not just going to go in super hard on it uh mm-hmm. and in indie it, it, especially i think indie filmmaking is different too because like it just shows how i feel like i mean you guys do it is it you think it's harder to make a, an indie movie than it is maybe a big budget movie or is it the or is it the opposite it's, what do you think both are hard. <laughs> both are I, yeah i mean that's yeah. yeah, I should have worded that a little bit different, but they're difficult in different ways. Okay. And I have I have yet to direct a studio feature. Um you're you're answering 
to different, you're serving different masters at every level, right? Right. And then even within the studio system, uh, from what I've been told, they all operate differently. And each product, you know, series of producers above you and studio executives, you are different. So every every movie making experience is going to be completely unique but they are difficult in different ways like indie stuff is like how do you find the money (laughs) yeah how do you like find the money and like ask for favors and to to get it done and and you know in studios like well they have the money but like how do you convince the suits that your choice or your decision is like a director is the right one right when they've got actual like final say so it's a different set of challenges what do you what do you think lee is there anything else specifically in there that yeah i think there's a reason that edgar wright left Ant-Man, right? Yeah. It's hard to be as creative in your own way as you want to. Like Angel said, you serve different masters. But I think it's true, like, even even on the indie level, like, you're you're collaborating with people, and you just want to make sure that you're collaborating with the right people that have the right vision. Like, what movie, uh, Night of the Demons. Have you seen it? It's a great movie. At the very beginning of the movie, they do something that I hate, which is they show the monster right away. And it's, mm-hmm. it's huge, and it's big, and it's got smoke coming. It looks cheesy as hell. It was good for the time, I guess. But the reason that they did that is because the producer said the film needed it. And the director is like, no, I don't want it at all. And the movie would have been better had they not shown the monster. Unequivocally. Like, outside of my opinion. So, uh, be, be rich and make your own movies. <laughs> answer to no one but also just that, like when you're telling a, you know you're telling that story about night of the demon it's like did that like did not nobody see jaws and how effective jaws was by not showing the monster this is this is the great question it's right? wild <laughs> yeah so well, i mean I, night of the demon was like 1950 oh okay i was thinking of a different night of the demon i, I think there was a wasn't there yeah. a night of a demon in like the 80 early 80s yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, there was Demon Wind. Are you thinking Demon Wind? Oh, I watched Demon Wind. That's a movie. Um, no, no, uh, I'm. I don't know. There's, there's, there's so many movies with <laughs> Demon in the title. Yeah. <laughs> you can, you can tell who are the horror fans and who is not. <laughs> I'll look it up. Go ahead, Angel. You're gonna say something. Well, there's a phenomenon, right, where one movie does something really, really well, and that becomes like the standard, like Jaws, don't show the monster. It's so much scarier, right? Right. And then after that, if someone's doing a similar monster movie and someone dares to deviate from that tenant, don't show the monster, right? When that happens, because it happens, right? And we look at it and we all from the outside go, that was a horrible choice. Why did they do that? I've started to be like, okay, what were the decisions that went into making that decision? Like, like, was it a taste thing? Was it someone had an idea and it didn't like necessarily land? Did they audience test it? We just had a, a great guest, Stephen Horniak on our show who talked about audience testing and the like mind blowing process that that, how that can change a story after they've shot it and they have to go back and reshoot. So, you know, if they, if everyone's seen Jaws and someone then shows the monster at the beginning of the movie after Jaws comes out and it, and it, and it falls flat. It like ruins the movie. Right. Or it like makes it less one, like as an audience member that sucks for us, but also as a filmmaker, I'm like, why did they do that? What were the decisions that went into that? Who had the power to enforce that decision? Or did no one actually see how it was going to negatively affect? It's like this weird thing of like reverse engineering the decisions we see as audience members and being like, what led to that? 
that fascinates me at least, but you're right. Like, you know, people should heed the like effective tenants, but they don't always do it. Well, yeah. I mean, just speaking, you know, not to have a little side tangent, but speaking of jaws, like it was supposed to be prominent throughout the movie. The fact that the shark never worked, they had to, Steven Spielberg just had to be creative with it. And then we got a masterpiece. Yeah. Um, So yeah, no, it's, it's just, it's mind blowing. Every time I listen to anything about making a movie, it just blows my mind. Just the intricacies and everything that goes into it. It's just like people can just watch a movie and be super judgmental, but they just don't know exactly the, the work that's, you know, put into it to, you know, and, and what, you know, especially with like higher budget movies, who's behind, who's actually behind the wheel. You know, you might have this high profile director, but is that director driving the car, you know, driving the car or is it just the studio making, you know, you know, doing it. So, but I, I, I've seen indie filmmakers who did it like watching interviews with them and, and seeing like they are mostly fully in control of, of, of a movie just because of the budget and um, you know, everything is coming from their mind. Since we're going to be talking about spoonful of sugar, how involved were you as the writer of the film? So what was great was working with uh, Mercedes Bryce Morgan, who directed it, and Katrina Kudlick, who helped produce with her um, Fever Dream Studio, along with Vanishing Angle, Matt Nadley, who we also interviewed on the pitch. They were so collaborative. And I was on a different film set doing something else during production. And so I was working two jobs. I remember just being exhausted. And they would have notes every day. They would have notes on the script that they wanted to change for a tomorrow's scene. So I was like up very late rewriting and going back and forth to make, to make sure that I got all of the notes correct. And so it was wonderfully collaborative. And I think it's because Katrina Mercedes and I all speak the same language. Like they're huge horror fans. This is like Mercedes genre that she loves to do. She likes, she told me in one of our first meetings that, she loves to make people uncomfortable. And so that's what this movie definitely it's, does. It's absolutely and I was she's like, good at it. She's good at I that. I was like, I dig that. That's my language too. I, I like to put people in the hot seat with a story. So majorly collaborative. That's, it's always great to hear, you know, that the, you know, the person who wrote the story is involved throughout the, the entire thing. Cause you know, at the end, it's still your work. Like it's still what yeah. what's on screen is what came from you and not, you know, somebody submits, you know, you write it, but then you have, you know, 14 other people messing around with it. And then by the end, it doesn't look like anything that you, you created. Uh, yeah. I watched this with my wife and my wife <laughs> doesn't watch a lot of movies like this. I, I usually watch a lot of indie horror by myself. Uh, yeah. so yeah, this was a, it was, it was fun to, to look over and see her reaction. And of course, a lot of, you know, WTFs as certain things are happening and, 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 and me, I'm very, you know, I, I try not to react too much, um, because I just enjoy seeing her reaction and I just kind of like, mm-hmm, yep, not in my head, but yeah, this was a, this was an experience to say the least. This was something, um, I, you know, okay. especially with the title. You know, especially, you know, was that was that title? Did it come from you? No, uh, I named my stuff generically. 
Like I have a short story that I wrote it's called the armchair because it's about an armchair that eats a man. Uh, this was originally called, um, this was originally called the sitter and there's a bunch of other movies. I think, um, Mick G has a movie called, you know, the baby, the babysitter. Right. And so they changed it to something else during production and then they changed it to spoonful of sugar. Um, I didn't pick the title. I think it's a great title. And as an investigative journalist, I'm used to my titles changing constantly because the editor just comes in and switches it out. But I have a quick question for you. Okay. Can you make the face that your wife made during most of the film? <laughs> just, <laughs> she's just that's yeah, so funny. Just that's, the wide that's eyes the and just kind of looking over at me periodically yeah. as certain scenes are happening because it's just to me like it. I think if some people watch it, they will feel that it is a slower movie. But for me, I think things were just kind of going like at a hundred miles an hour throughout the whole thing. You know, yeah. Well, that's, that's interesting to me because, like, The Exorcist is one of my very favorite films, mm-hmm. but nothing happens. Like, the first act turn is the demon in the church with the, you know, yep. the thing. And that's, like, that's 30, 45 minutes into the movie. I just, I like the buildup of 70 films, so this is very much oh, in tow with I, that. I, if, you, if you couldn't tell with all the Jaws talk, Jaws is my favorite movie. Uh, and I just, I... I tried to learn everything about the ins and outs of that movie. And uh, yeah, I mean, to be honest, Jaws isn't a movie that really kind of goes, goes, goes. It's like something happens mm-hmm. and it's a very, it's much of a lo- There's a lot of low before you get to something else going on. And then of course, like it's that thing where you don't see the shark for 45 minutes or even close to an hour into the movie. So if, if for me, I'm like, that's great. Or like alien or, you know, those type of movies, those are my, those are the type of movies I love. I don't, yeah. Don't get me wrong. I'm a sucker for pretty much anything. Uh, you know, I'll, I'm I, I'm not too picky when it comes to, you know, watching movies. I've been watching the uh, the Puppet Master series over the last couple months, which is an experience in themselves. But uh, yeah, it this movie was it definitely left me in shock at some moments, kind of just like didn't see it. You know, certain things I didn't see coming and Morgan Saylor is fantastic in this movie. She just yeah. brings such an uncomfortable feeling. Like like everything she does throughout the movie, you kind of just feel uncomfortable for both her and yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it, the, just the transformation. I just I it, it her performance was fantastic along with, you know, the the rest of the cast, but her her performance really stood out to me. Yeah. Yeah. She did a just a wonderful job. What was she like in person, Leah? Did you get to meet her? So I was on set. Um, I do a cameo. Yeah, I saw your name in the extras. Huh. That's okay. In the movie, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do a cameo. And she was very protective of uh, Johnny. What were you in the... I, I, don't, I don't know if this is really a spoiler. Were you in the... The scene where she takes him outside. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that, that was like because I'm like they showed all the extras and I was like there wasn't a lot of people in this movie. It was like a bus scene. No. Where he had some people yeah. on a bus, and then it was the yeah. scene where she kind of takes him around the neighborhood. Yeah, yeah I'm in this uh, houndstooth beige and white jacket okay. that cinches in the middle, and that jacket 
was in another short film of mine that I wrote and directed the angel starred in called two dresses. It's a famous jacket. Now I should sell it. Who wore it in that film, Adam? Adam wore it. Yeah. So you wore the same coat as Adam in another film. Yeah. Uh, and you still have it. Of course. It's a wonderful jacket. Is it going to, when is it going to make another appearance in one of your films? Uh, as soon as somebody gives me money to make the next one. <laughs> okay. Any investors who are listening out there who love a houndstooth yeah. coat? I have so many ideas. I do drama as well. If horror isn't your thing. I think Angel needs to get into horror. It's just such a Man, great genre. I got to be honest. Like I have a, I have a couple friends, filmmakers who have all got their start in horror. And it's just amazing to see how doing a good horror story can really launch a career, but it's just not my thing, man. Like, <laughs> like I watch, I watch, um, I mean, God, we wouldn't watch John wick last week and even some of the like more intense scenes in John wick. I'm like, ah, you know, I'm like cringing, I'm like, like, <laughs> like turning away. It's just my sense uh, my sensibilities are just too tender. I just don't have it in me. You, um, Brett, you do your wife's face again for a spoonful. <laughs> I was angel's face also when he watched Spoonful of Sugar. Oh yeah, that's great. I I'm just it. like, why? Like, why? It's unlike I don't like. I'm uncomfortable enough in my everyday life. I don't need the things I'm watching to make me feel as uncomfortable as horror makes me feel. What? And some people get off on that feeling, and I'm not like I, I'm not one of those people. And God bless them, but that's like it's not for me. So. It's yeah. I mean, what what makes what's more uncomfortable watching like a, a kill scene in a horror movie or watching a sex scene? I mean, it all depends, right? It's the how of a thing. So if it's gratuitous and like graphic for graphic's sake, then uh, neither of them are pleasant for me. If it's if it's well crafted and like either pays off something earlier in the story or it complicates something or it like sets up something later in the story that sort of storytelling for me is rewarding regardless of what it is then. Right. Right. But like gratuitous or intense for those sakes, it's, I mean, some people love it, you know, God bless them, but I am, I it's, it's on the how for me. Yeah. I, I completely agree. I think it's, if, if a sex scene is just there to be there, yeah. it's like, it doesn't add to anything. Like, I feel like what, no. what we see in, in spoonful of sugar, I think it, because of, we're seeing Millicent's journey through like she's going through a transformation. So when you see her, you know, doing things, <laughs> it's, it makes sense to the story that's being told on screen, which I appreciate. But when it's just like, yeah, we're just going to do a sex scene for the next two minutes. And you're just like, why? Yeah. It, no, I was very cognizant about that. When I wrote those several scenes that have mm -hmm. that portray that it's, um, because it's the theme is motherhood, right? What mm -hmm. do you do to protect your family? And underneath that is power dynamics. So every sex scene in the movie is in exchange of power or reasserting your power, especially for Millicent. And I had, I had somebody do a critique of the script of this film and they were like, Jacob and Rebecca have sex too much. I'm like, but they don't at all. No. Ever. It's always like an attempt. And they get to a certain yeah. point and then it like something, right. You know, it, something stops them from doing it. Yeah. That's because they don't have any power until the end. Right. Or at least Rebecca doesn't. And boy, 
it, it that ending. <laughs> I know. I, ending. I want to talk about it so bad because it's. I mean, I have no problem. I could always put a spoiler warning, and we could talk some spoilers on this movie. And uh, yeah, and then you know people can just you know make Do sure it. to go to watch it, and then we can talk. All right. If you haven't seen Spoonful of Sugar, make sure to go check it out on Shutter right now. For one, Shutter is only like five ninety nine a month, so it's cheap, and it's got amazing indie horrors like Spoonful of Sugar. So go check it out because we're gonna spoil the crap out of it right now. <laughs> because when yeah. I have the writer, we're gonna talk about it. All right, that ending. <laughs> Let's start off from the end, okay? I just didn't see it coming. I thought it was gonna be so different from what we saw. But I, but the the crazy thing was, is we got the hints, like mm-hmm. like throughout that. The these other babysitters weren't; they didn't just leave. Like there was. What actually, did you think the What did you think sorry. the ending was going to be? I thought yeah. Millicent was going to kill. I thought I I really it was probably just that like basic. I thought that uh, Johnny was going to kill his mom, and then Millicent mm-hmm. was going to get with the dad. And they were going to live happily mm-hmm. ever after. But I'm like, nah, I, when I saw it happen, when I saw, you know, Johnny actually kill Millicent, I was like, okay, I like this more because it's not what I was expecting to happen. But also I was getting those subtle hints. I was going, Hmm, I think, I think some of these other babysitters are still here. Just not oh, with yeah. us. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. My pitch, my pitch for this was I had just gotten done writing this Franco thing and I wanted control over my own project. So I was like, what can I do? And so my original pitch for this was what if Lolita, you know, this very sexualized young teenager, preteen, what if Lolita were Halloween Mike Myers babysitter when he was a little kid? Wow. And so I know the film has, yeah, I know the film has a lot of, oh, he's autistic, but there's a line in there that we throw that away. No, this is Dr. Loomis saying he is just evil. Mm-hmm. Like this kid is just purely evil. And that's it. End of story. Um, and I did my master's thesis on female serial killers. So a lot of the psychology that I, that I had and I, I researched for a year went into Melissa's character. And one of the interesting things about female serial killers is they have a longer killing career than their male counterparts. And they have a higher victim rate. So I wanted to take these, these two killers and pit them against each other. And Johnny is early in his career as a killer. So he's only killed like his speech pathologist, which is a scene that was cut. And he's killed some of his other babysitters that Millicent has been killing since she was Johnny's age. So she has, in my mind, when I wrote her, she has hundreds. Wow. He has maybe a dozen. It, also, what I one thing that was kind of blowing my mind was like, what what was her real name? Cause she goes, she, there was like three <laughs> names you hear in the movie. Yeah. Mary Beth, Millicent. Yeah. So you never get to know. Yeah. That's some, that's some like dark night Joker type thing where he's the, you never know how he yeah. got those scars. <laughs> you never, you never get to know. No. And I love having a mystery. It's great. It was great. But like, I, that was one of the things my wife kept. It was like, what, what's her actual name? Like, why does, why is she being called this now? <laughs> I'm like, it's got to be that LSD. It's just, it's, it's causing some stuff to happen. So, so can I ask what your wife's takeaway was from it? Other than she, it was like tough for her to get through. Cause it was so intense. Like what was she mm-hmm. like? What did she walk away feeling and thinking about it? It was just, it, I think she was just confused. 
she was she was trying to i i think she's still trying to process it um as i stated before this is it's not the type of movie she we really watch yeah Um, yeah we did just finish watching a show on apple tv plus called servant um which kind of it's like a nanny goes into a family where like the family has like a traumatic experience uh they lose a child and they they hire this nanny because the mom has to like she hasn't fully accepted she lost the kid but like crazy things happen and so like that was probably the craziest thing she's seen like the most like mind-bending things she's seen and so after this movie yeah it's 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 great though i love it you know she's she's a little bit harder on movies than i am uh because she's not used to that type of of film but yeah she came out i think she just came out with her brain just kind of melting <laughs> she was just trying to still try to figure out what the hell just happened what what did we just watch for the last hour and a half <laughs> as the writer leah how do you feel about how do you feel about melting brains leah Oh, I'm all for it if I get to melt people's brains. But it's kind of like this this sub-genre of babysitter films, right? Mm-hmm. You invite a stranger into your home. It, I had this experience. I babysat a lot in my life. And I went into these this person's home and I watched their two sons. Well, they just left. This is before background checks. This right. is like late 90s. I was like, you don't know me. You were just I walking down the street. They were just like, hey, excuse I, me. Excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> I got twenty dollars. Can you watch my kid? <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's just very spooky subgenre. Like you have the the haunting of Bly Manor. Oh, you have um, Babysitter, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I just i I think that there is something very visceral about inviting a stranger to do the most intimate of things, which is watch your family, which is the thing that you protect the world from. If you want to, if your wife wants to know, like the movie is about what would you do? What links would you go to, to protect your family? Ultimately, that was the theme that I went for. Like this idea of what motherhood is. I will, I will pass that message. See what she thinks. <laughs> yeah. Unmelt that brain a little bit. Unmelt it just a little <laughs> bit. See what her process is now. So d- did you as just as the writer, do you have any say or like, do you, are you involved in like casting or anything? What was so great was Mercedes would ask me who I liked for roles. Um, just to know my opinion so that she could get out of her own head and branch off a little bit. But mm-hmm. ultimately she had, she had final say. And I think she did a, she did a killer job. Yeah. This cast, this cast is, yeah. uh, this is a good one. I, I, I do. <laughs> I find it. I found it funny though when Millicent first shows up to the house for the interview and then she sees the dad for the first time. I know. It's like, of course, it's, a, it's just a ripped man out there doing some yard work. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> and she's just the tale going, as old as time right there. <laughs> she's going, and then of, of course, like she's processing. I mean, I, 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 you know, even me, I would have been drooling over him too. I would have been looking out the window like. I I'll, need to work I'll here now, him. please. I'll tell him. <laughs> I'll tell him you said that. <laughs> Michael is so friendly. They, yeah, I mean, the it's definitely a movie that leaves you uncomfortable. It leaves you just kind of thinking, like, especially Millicent. Like, she looks like, I mean, clearly you see her going through some really messed up stuff. And as, as you had stated, the, the fact that, like, 
she has done this before. Like she is a killer herself. I mean, we see her do it in the movie, but then you also see that she's, she's also killed others. And, but you're also seeing just the weird, like the, the scene with her and I'm, it wasn't her father. Correct. It was just the guy that was just like letting her stay there. Yeah. Oh, just those type of scenes just get you so uncomfortable. And uh, you're just like, please don't go as far as I'm. Please don't go too far. Okay. And then she stands up for herself (laughs) and ends it. And you're just like, I was, I rooted for her in that moment. I was like, thank (laughs) God it did not get to that point. And then, yeah, because it's just, it just shows kind of how certain people can be because there are men out there, you know, there are just people in general out there who are like that. Just, yeah prey on you know young people and to to get get their rocks off for as as they it's say so, it's like hard candy you remember that that movie yeah that's a that's another one that makes your skin crawl a little bit yeah but the 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 whole lsd you know spin mm-hmm. on it kind of adds to it because you're of course you're you're not seeing things mostly what she's actually seeing you're seeing the uh, an illusion because there's moments where like she's talking to johnny and then like it cuts like she then sees the dad and then she looks down and they're both gone and it's, and then there's the and then the scene progresses to a pretty graphic scene mm-hmm. but you're kind of questioning is it was that real did that yeah happen because like johnny's in his room now like what what's happening like i, I Again, this is a mind-bending, mind-melting movie that just leaves you with so many questions and like wondering what's real and what's not real. And everybody on screen just makes you like tries to force you to believe this is what's real, but then you're just like, but what about that? That just like how does this all work? Yeah, she's tripping through the whole movie until she throws the things away at the end. And that's something that Mercedes and Katrina really like to play with is what is real and what isn't real. They do it in their, their film that premiered at TIFF this past year uh, called Fixation. And I think, I think it will be a thread throughout Mercedes' career on what is real and what isn't real, playing around with that dynamic. Makes for entertaining uh, filmmaking. Right. I mean, it, when you make somebody, I, I think a, a good film makes it, you want people to think. You, you want you want to be able to like w- ask questions and and keep thinking about like what is truly happening. Because uh, I think, it, but if you go too far, then I think it kind of pulls people out of it. Like if I have to think, like overthink, then then I'm just like then I'm completely lost. Like I didn't feel lost in this movie, but it was always you always had the question of what is real and what is not. I think that was like my thing Ince- throughout. Like Inception, right? right. You, yeah. You're right. guessing through that whole movie. And then um, Michael Caine's character, Nolan told him, anything that you're in is reality. That's something that he told yeah. Michael Caine to present in the film. So it's like, it kind of grounds you. But I like, again, being uncomfortable and not knowing, mm-hmm. is this true? Is this happening? What is morality? What isn't morality when you're dealing with two serial killers? So I'm going to ask this question because you've probably been asked this many, many times, especially because of the title of the movie. Uh, did at any point, did anyone think this was going to be a like horror movie based on Mary Poppins? Uh, 
<laughs> I don't think so because <laughs> yeah. because the title did change. But Millicent has a line in there. She says at the beginning when she first meets Johnny, um, animals, children and animals love me, which is something that I say in my life. <laughs> Not that I'm like Millicent in any way. That's good. But, I'm glad they just took the line. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just the line. But if but if you take that and you apply it to Mary Poppins, like, yeah, Millicent is a very twisted Mary Poppins. So the the new title totally fits. And then had, spoonful of sugar, spoonful of acid. Go ahead, Angel. I've had several people ask me if it's something about Mary Poppins. Several people. I'm like, oh yeah. yeah. Well, I don't. I I also have a confession. I didn't see Mary Poppins until like a couple years ago. So I didn't know what the heck everybody was on about with Mary Poppins. And I still don't know what that reference is. A spoonful of sugar. I think it's a song she sings, right? Yes. Yeah. But everyone I've told. Yeah, there it is. Um, Everyone I've told about your film, everyone I've told your, everyone I've told, however you say that they've been like, Oh, is it like a Mary Poppins thing? And I'm like, I don't know. It's like, it's a, it's a babysitter. So maybe, but there's like, there's like bad stuff. So don't watch it with your mom. No, watch it with your, don't watch it with my mom. My mom can't watch this movie, but it is a mother's day film. No, it's not. No, (laughs) no, no. no. I watched it on the wrong day. (laughs) Don't, but, um, listening to this, tell your mom to watch it separately <laughs> and you watch it by yourself. This is not take, for take, children and parents to watch together. Definitely, definitely take your mom. My, my family loves movies. Like my dad owned two video stores growing up. So I watched everything and anything that he owned. And we go to movies all the time. I was a projectionist for like 10 years. And whenever I go home to Ohio, we go together as a family unit. And one year, Hostel 2 was playing on Father's Day. We wow. took my dad that. <laughs> he was like, <laughs> you know the scene I'm talking about. He's like, nope, nope, nope. So happy Father's Day, happy Mother's Day. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, especially in, you know, recently, you know, they, they just released that Winnie the Pooh horror movie a couple months ago, which I saw. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like it, it, in a time when they're starting to turn these these properties that are in public domain into horror movies, I, I would imagine there are people who probably see the cover of this movie and the title of this movie go, oh, is this a horror? Is this a Mary Poppins horror movie? No, it's not. <laughs> it's, it's, maybe lo- a little bit, a little, a little, but no. I love this idea. I love this idea of uh, taking like a classic and yes. turning it on its head and putting it into a different genre. Let's each name a movie that isn't horror that we would remake as horror. I'll go first. Failure to launch. Oh, the Matthew McConaughey that, classic. <laughs> yeah, that would make such a good horror movie. Okay. <laughs> Brett, you got, go. Oh, no. Well, I feel like I'm cheating because I, I know that they've talked about doing this, but I would, I just think Peter Pan is a perfect yeah. movie. You could turn into horror. I mean, it's already a horror movie. If you think about it's it, it's terrifying. Yes. Firstly, <laughs> that movie has freaked me out. That story has freaked me out since I was a kid. It's terrifying. Yeah. It's terrifying. Yep. There's some, there's something, something that doesn't resonate with that story with me. It's like, it, it freaks me out. So I, I'd agree with you that, it's probably perfect for it. The, the funniest thing is I think the one that is not is probably the least scary out of all the Peter Pan properties is hook the Steven Spielberg version with Robin Williams. Cause yeah. 
I just feel that one's more innocent and that one is is made out to be different. But when you watch that Disney movie, that Disney, animated Disney movie, you're just like, this is terrifying. Yeah. I would do the sound of music. <laughs> would it still be a musical? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the threat would be zombies. Like, not only are they Nazis, Ooh. they're Nazi zombies. Uh-huh. And then one of the kids right. might have the fever, like, and it like, you know, it's spreading in the house. You got so many of those kids, wow. right? And then how do you solve a problem like Maria? Maybe like Maria is the harbinger of like the virus. And we don't know if she's like infecting people or not, but the dad's in love with her. And like sound yeah. of music all day long as a horror. Yeah. I love that. I love, uh, there aren't very many uh, horror musicals, but when they come out, boy, are they grand. Little shots of horror? Come on. Yeah. The poster yeah. would be Maria on the hill in the Swiss Alps, right? But instead of like it being her like singing, it'd be her as like a zombie face like getting chased by the children behind her in this like lush green, like picturesque, you I know, need it. I need that poster right now. I need, I need to get hired to write that. So if you're listening and you want that movie, hire me. <laughs> <laughs> that is, that's great. Let's, um, let's kind of uh, branch off and just ask, I just want to ask you guys some questions that I try to ask everyone that I have on the show, but like what, if you could pick, what is your favorite movie of all time? Just one. I mean, I guess you could list. I mean, what's one? What's the one that's like the most special to you? Like, it's your ultimate favorite. I mean, I guess you could you could name a few. I'll let you. So Leah's Leah's head is going to explode because she has a list of eight hundred, which are her favorite okay. movies. Yeah. Okay. She talked about in our first podcast episode. So, <laughs> so I'll go first and give her a minute if that's okay, Leah. Yeah. So it vacillates between two for me: Beasts of the Southern Wild okay. with Quentin Wallace. Um, and Sunset Boulevard. Every time I watch one of those movies, either of those, all I can think is this has to be the greatest movie script of all time. It is there, but they're for me, they're both so note good that it baffles my mind how one Billy Wilder mm-hmm. wrote and made that movie when he did. And then with Beasts of the Southern Wild, I've said this before, like, I don't know how they did that movie. I don't I don't understand how they how the images that I see were created and the story that I'm watching came together. It is like alchemical for me. It's like that is magic to me. So one of those for me. All right. I'm going to go with The Fall by Tarsen Singh. If you haven't seen it, it's really, really good. It took him forever. Uh, He pretty much self-funded it. So it it took him 10 years to do. And it's a story within a story. Um, Yeah. And I'm going to also pick two, which is great because I'm not giving you 800. (laughs) And my second second one is Cool Hand Luke. There's just something so good and so powerful about a man believing in in his identity and and himself and his freedom until he dies for it. You guys with you, you guys with these these deep picks, and I'm over here like <laughs> I like Jaws. Jaws is my ultimate favorite oh, movie of all. Like amazing. it's just to me, it's a masterpiece. It's perfect. Even though if you watch anything of how the movie was made, it was far from it. And uh, and then I got to stick with Spielberg. Like I, you know, I'm an I'm a '90s kid, so I grew up with Jurassic Park, and I probably have seen mm-hmm. Jurassic Park hundreds of times throughout my life. 
and uh, his filmmaking is just unreal, especially, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, even to, I mean, even today. I mean, he was up for an Academy Award this year for a movie about himself, pretty much. So the guy could do, in my opinion, no wrong. But yeah, those two, those two movies. And then I, I'll give a third and that would probably be The Dark Knight because Christopher Nolan is the modern Spielberg, I think. You know, just the the way he uses so much practical effects compared to just throwing CG everywhere, even though Spielberg uses a lot of CG, but he was kind of like he was there in the beginning. So it just makes more sense. But like Christopher Nolan, he's he's a genius. And The Dark Knight was one of the greatest, not just comic book movies, but one of the greatest, like just movies of all time, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. If you go to my if you go to my YouTube, um, you can skip past my director's reel in the Marshall horror film that I have on there. There is also a video of Jeff Goldblum reading a poem that I wrote for him on stage oh. at the Rockwell. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and if you haven't heard these stories about Jeff Goldblum, Brett, he is quite the charmer. <laughs> I've seen it's so like many Jeff- interviews with him and... Okay, so you know. I yeah, the, the man is amazing. He's yeah. he's irresistible in real life from what I've heard firsthand from women like Leah and through interviews like he is dangerous around town. So, <laughs> hide your wife. <laughs> he's from and he's also from my favorite city, which is Pittsburgh. So, yeah, we um he and I talked about Pittsburgh because I went to my other master's degree was his hometown in Pittsburgh, hmm. Murray Hill. That's awesome. Did you talk about it over a glass of wine? Maybe. (laughs) I'm not telling you my life. (laughs) All right. Next, next question. uh, Since you both are, are filmmakers, who is, who is like a high profiled actor that you would love to work with? Angel Hugo. I'm I'm just throwing it to whoever wants the answer first. I went first last time, Leah, this is on you. Well, no, but I don't like dead airspace because there's so many good ones. It's okay. Um, it's okay. I, I'm going to be editing this, so yeah. it's okay. Take your time. High profile. Well, Meryl Street. All right. Mer- Meryl just is th- like that good. Like everyone just wants to work with her. It's, it's, it's insane, but you know what? And, and fun, funny story about Meryl Streep. Uh, where I live, about, four, about 40 minutes away from where I live, my uncle used to work at a deli. And she was making a movie close by and she went into that deli and she ordered the sandwich and she told him to not call her by her name. Cause like, of course he knew who she was. And then as a joke, he literally, once her sandwich was done, he just yelled Meryl. <laughs> but that's the kind of guy he is. He's a, he's a jokester. So like, he was like, you're going to tell me this. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to yell Meryl. Yeah. So loud. So yeah. there's my little Meryl story since we, you brought her up. <laughs> Did she then slap him? No, no. I think she oh. probably just, she was probably like shocked at first. And then I think he said like, she was, she was really, she was really nice about it. Um, wait, was this in Pittsburgh? No. So I, I'm from Western Massachusetts. So uh, there's a town called Great Barrington, which they do. I think they do a film festival there once in a while. Uh, but there's mm-hmm. a, a a theater in a town next to it called Lennox. It's called Tanglewood. They do a lot of uh, like the BSO goes there. And I know they do a lot of plays there. And 
So uh, she was, but she was filming a movie, I believe, somewhere close. And we also have, um, oh, it, like a a Shakespeare production company around yeah. here. So she might have been involved in that at some point. This was like in the late '80s, early '90s when this event happened. So this was uh, probably before I was even alive. <laughs> so I have kind of a controversial answer for this. And I'll explain why I'm saying the person I'm saying, and it's not because of who he is necessarily, but it's Johnny Depp. <clears throat> and the reason I say Johnny Depp is because he's talked about his role as an actor, what, what he's doing, right? He has articulated that he's not necessarily like dead set on this is the character and this is the character choice and the character would never do that thing. So he's going to get into an argument, right? He has said, my job is to give the director and editor options. So he figures out who this character is within a certain like spectrum, right? And then he goes through and makes sure he gives multiple options for all these pivotal moments. So when they're sitting in the editing room, they can shape the character as the story best needs it to be shaped. And a lot of people talk about how <clears throat> part of the magic of working in film is the collaboration right well the actor wants to put their stamp on it and the producer wants to put their stamp on it and it's influencing you know the the shape of this thing this movie in all these directions but if people hold too rigidly in my opinion and in my experience if people hold too rigidly to an idea of a moment in a story as as someone who's edited a, f a fair amount both my own stuff and other people's stuff i i, I cannot help but value that type of thinking as an actor. You know, I'm going to give you options because we can argue who the character is and what's going to be best, but we won't actually know until you put it in the editing room and you piece it all together and they get it in front of an audience. The audience goes, we didn't like that. And then, then as an editor, as a filmmaker, I'm like, that's fine because we have six different options for that moment that might satisfy the audience better than the one we thought would satisfy the audience. So it's less of a, a who for me. I just know that he's articulated that before. And that as a, as a writer director is very exciting to me because I'm super specific, maybe a little bit too specific and grip too tight to my work. I expect people to kind of bend to my word, but having also been an actor, I'm like, I, I see the value in giving people options as a performer. So when they're in the editing room, they're like, well, we got three different ways this can go and let's figure out the best, the most powerful series of like choices and mo moments for this character. So that's my long winded answer. I like your answer. Um, can we answer the, the uh, can we do the answer again and pick the opposite gender? Uh, go, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I would, do, I would do Keanu Reeves. Oh, yeah. He's what a, what a guy. That's what a, what a, what a guy. <laughs> yeah. I would do Janelle Monet. Yeah. Yeah, you would. She is. They're great. They're they, right? They're great. Uh, Janelle goes by they. I did not know that. Uh, apologies to Janelle and any of her people. Janelle is highly underrated as mm -hmm. a performer and as an actress, actor. She, like, I mean, like, I am the biggest fan. Yeah, they were fantastic in Glass Onion. Uh, oh my gosh. They yeah. Were, yeah, they were great. Yeah. And I know they, I mean, they're fantastic you know, she, uh, they are a wonderful singer. 
and they just showed how amazing they are at acting as well. And it's just, it just blew my mind because I hadn't seen them in much before that. I know they've been in um, a few things, uh, but Glass Onion was like the first time I had had seen them on screen, like in a big, yeah. big role. But Crushing yeah, it. Great choice. Yeah. It's a great choice. I'd also... I'd also do Rihanna. Rihanna surprised me in Battleship. I liked Battleship. I know a lot of people I, didn't. Battleship's fun. You know what? It's I love you can't, Battleship. You can't, go into, you can't go into Battleship and go, man, this is going to be, I got to take this serious. All right? Yeah. I, no, you just got to go in, shut your brain off a little bit because it, it's literally about, you know, ships battling aliens. It's Independence Day in a way. <laughs> and they did a yeah. good job yeah. with it. You know? But that's what's so great about movies is you can have these indie things. You can like, you can have the high drama and the low drama of it. Or you can have the horror comedies, or you can just you can go to the movies and eat popcorn. And like, my dad said, it wasn't it wasn't since he saw Rocky in the movie theater and then saw Avengers Endgame that people stood up on mass and clapped That's at the crazy. screen in Ohio, where people, you know. I don't know. In, in, in Ohio, it's like it blew my mind that people can have such a strong reaction to these characters. And I love it. I love the movie. They're great. Did, did you then send him what Scorsese said about the Marvel <laughs> pictures that it's not cinema, it's not movies to ruin his day? No, Good. no. Good. My, my dad doesn't need his day ruined. <laughs> Is he a big Scorsese fan? My dad just loves movies. Oh, he really, go. truly just. Just loves, loves them. Yeah. I remember, so to go a little bit, just a little bit of detail, uh, my dad owned two video stores and they both went under. And so he brought all of the VHSs and all of the betas home. My parents were divorced and lived with my dad. And every wall was just movies. Every wall. They had foot lockers, stacked foot lockers full of movies. So when I came home from school, I got to watch whatever I wanted to watch. I watched every, I watched everything without filter because my dad is working all of the time. That's amazing. I'm so jealous. That explains a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he saw some stuff as uh, a kid. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'll watch any movie. It doesn't matter. I'll watch any movie. I mean, I was kind of the same way when growing up. I had a grandmother who, I mean, a lot of, I have uh, the, I have some VHSs over here from grandparents, but uh, my grandmother had a huge VHS collection. And that's how, when I, that's, how I saw Jaws, Jurassic Park, all the Indiana, the original trilogy of Indiana Jones for the very first time, mm-hmm. like those movies that kind of shaped my love for, you know, movies and the reason, the main reason why I started the podcast, because uh, I just love talking about movies. You know, that's kind of the whole point. We, you know, I just like going on camera and just kind of going through a movie and just talking about it in a different, you know, in a different view. Because seeing it as an, you know, cert, seeing certain movies, especially movies that I loved as a kid, they, they change, they change over time yeah. and uh, either they get better or maybe they don't hold up so well. Uh, we just, uh, it, it's not out yet, but in a couple of weeks we were releasing our Titanic episode, which I hadn't seen Titanic in like 15 years. And mm-hmm. so seeing it as, you know, a guy in his thirties compared to the last time I saw it when I was like in middle school, high school. It was a huge difference. I, I think I respected it more. I respect because I respect yeah. what James Cameron did for that movie and the passion that he put behind that movie. Where when I was, you know, when I first saw it, I was probably 
a little too young for it. Uh, I was probably like less than 10. And for me, it was just falling in love with the ship itself. I could have cared less about the Jack and Rose story. Mm -hmm. I just, I was obsessed with the Titanic itself. So it's just me. Like, I just felt like I was there as a kid, but now, but watching it as an adult, I still loved that. But I also thought that the the love story between Jack and Rose were really good. I was like, well, I'm glad I could appreciate that thing I didn't care about before. (laughs) So revisiting yeah. those those type of movies and seeing if they for one, if they still hold up um, and and getting to just kind of laugh at certain things, you know, watching movies from like the 80s or even the 70s where they're using a lot of practical effects. And, you know, there are great yeah. practical effects like The Thing from 82. And then you have some, you know, lesser indie horror films from the 80s. that may not have the greatest uh, practical effects, but they're still so fun to see because it's just. I don't know. It's just the, the the power of of storytelling and the power of just the limitations they had back then. And yeah, I just love movies. I'm 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 with you, Leah. I just love watching I, movies, and I'm not the type of person who's going to limit myself. Except I'm not the the biggest fan of musicals, but if I have to, I'll watch it. <laughs> it depends on it depends on the musical. Yes. But I I want to speak to being an advocate for our favorite films. We have these favorite films like that we want to tell people about. We want to spread the word. Um, when I was a projectionist, we were still on 35 millimeter and I had a huge cabinet full of trailers that I was required to put six at the beginning of every film as per the request of the distributor. And they mm-hmm. had certain ones. So if it was like anywhere in the Marvel universe, they had a... Um, present their own films so it was like self-promotion but I didn't do that I was a renegade projectionist <laughs> and I would put films I would put trailers at the front of movies that I wanted people to watch like Derek C. and France's Blue Valentine a movie that nobody probably has heard about I would put that trailer on the beginning of all 10 of my movies that I had in my movie house that that year wow that's awesome yeah yeah <laughs> Were there any uh, were there any legal repercussions for you breaking no, the contract? No, God no. Okay. Plainsville, Ohio. Nobody cared. Nobody came in. Well done. Nobody. And way to be an advocate for for stories that you cared about, and you had the you were in a position of power to you know try to get people to see that movie. Do you know if anybody came and saw Blue Valentine when it came out? Then me. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did. So your I'm campaign worked on you. Too. My campaign definitely worked for me. I'm trying to get to Derek C in France. I'd like to interview him for our podcast. So that's a little story that I want him to know about. Like 12 people at least saw your movie because of me, Derek. 12 more people. I'm sure more than 12 people saw it. 12 more. Yes, yes, yes. I guess, um, I guess, Leah, you are a writer, of course. Who would be the one director you would love to write a movie for? Oh my gosh, Lynn Ramsey. So Lynn Ramsey did um, You Were Never Really Here. Did you? Did either of you see that movie? Oh, I, I've it's heard of it. Phoenix. I've heard of it. I gotta see it now. She's, uh, she's a Scottish director, I believe. And her stuff, like, I like a scene that twists the expectation of the audience, obviously. And in that movie, I will it's not giving anything away because you'll know, you know, the premise when you go into it, but mm-hmm. it's, um, 
these two hitmen are together and they've battled it out. And this is like in the first act. They've battled it out and one of them has successfully did a kill shot on the other one. And they're lying, they're both lying down on the kitchen floor and the radio is playing a song. And you think, okay, our hero is going to get up. He's going to go out the door. He finishes act, his action scene onto the next thing. But what Lynn Ramsey does is something that I've never seen any other director do, which is she sat in that horrific moment where this evil man was dying and our hero laid on the floor with him and held his hand until he passed away. And then he moved on to the next scene. Wow. I was like the humanity of it leveled my soul. So that's, that's who I would like. Very cool. That's who I would like to work with some, someday. But I also direct my own stuff. Um, and I, um, and I don't always want to direct every script that I write. Like I wrote mm-hmm. something that Angel's going to direct someday. That's awesome. God, God willing, we find funding. Angel, I'm going to ask you the same question. What, what's, who's a director you would love to work with? As a writer, um, I guess I would love for Doug Lyman to have a crack at my Hammond script. That'd be, that'd be a pretty cool um, director to have work on my work remind me who what has doug done i'm so sorry uh mr and mrs smith yeah one of the, one of the first born one yes, of the first yes, born yes. movies okay and yeah. was he also behind jumper <laughs> did he direct that mm, no jumper was no that's looper i'm thinking of ryan johnson um he may have been behind jumper that's that's a good question i have it back here but I'm i should i should it. know that <laughs> We can, we can, I can have my assistant. No, it's just a cat. It's not an actual assistant. I was going to have my cat look it up <laughs> on the internet. Um, no, he did Mr. and Mrs. Smith. And <clears throat> uh, I forget what he most recently did, but uh, I'm really bad with remembering like the specific names attached to specific titles. However, I do remember what I felt and what I observed. And the last thing he directed, I watched recently, and I was blown away by like the craftsmanship on how he... Um, constructs action sequences and my Hammond script is like a kind of actiony um a reimagining a reimagination of like Rambo um except with a black guy on the run from the cops so having someone as experienced as him cr- take a crack at that would be pretty cool so he did direct jumper he directed edge yep. of tomorrow and yes uh, Amer- an American made which were uh, another Tom Cruise movie so he does his last two movies were Tom Cruise but yeah, I yeah. remember. I remember he directed the Born Identity. That was like yep. his. Yeah, uh, there it is. Well, Swingers was his first movie with Vince Vaughn and uh, John Favreau. Yeah, yeah. And Edge of Tomorrow, or Live Die Repeat, as it was originally called. Yep. I mean, yeah. I don't know. Greatest Tom Cruise movie for anybody else here? Because that was oh, great. Yeah. It's it's got to be between Absolutely. that or one of the late, like one of the more more recent Mission Impossible movies. The new Mission Impossible oh. movies are just so good. Yeah. Legend. I I I I I don't want to admit, but I have to. I've never seen Legend. I don't even know what Legend is. What is Legend? Uh, uh, I mean, the only thing I know is that Tim Curry plays the devil. <laughs> mm-hmm. In the in a insane practical like makeup, it's insane. But that's yeah. literally the gist of of what I. It wasn't. Um, uh, uh, she was just in Top Gun Maverick. Uh, Jennifer. Yeah. Connolly. Connolly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. She was in that too. That I know who was in it. Never seen it. And I know Ron Howard directed it. 
I think you're right. See, I know all that. I just never seen the movie, you know? <laughs> well, do you guys have anything else you guys want to talk about before um before we get out of here? Um, maybe, yeah, what do, I don't know. What do I need to promote, Leah? You were saying there's so many things you should ask me about. Oh, that. Yeah, your other podcast, your music podcast that I produced. Okay, and anything go. else? The documentary. Okay, so I've got two other projects that I'm, I've got several other projects, but two are like very like on fire right now for me. Um, I do a music podcast called Before the Fade. And it's basically, I sit down with another music insider and we dissect really popular songs. We go over the personnel, the, um, the origin of the song, we play the song, other influences and whatnot. <clears throat> I've got Susan Rogers coming up on, a, on an episode coming up. And if you don't know who Susan Rogers is, she was one of Prince's main sound engineers throughout the entire 80s. Throughout his, like, in my opinion, his most prolific creative period of time. Um, fascinating woman with some fascinating insight into his recording process. Mm-hmm. And she went on to become a, a, she got her PhD in neuroscience and she studied like creativity and how like music and creativity is processed in the brain in part because of her work with Prince. So as like the son of a musician, as someone who still plays music and creates music to this day, this is like my personal passion project um, podcast it's called Before the Fade. And then I'm also working on a documentary um, and it's basically documenting Leah um, as she brings to life one of her scripts it's a it's a it's a film that is set in italy so we went on a location scout last year and i chased her around italy for like what two weeks with a camera Mm -hmm. documenting that entire process and the 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 anniversary of that is coming up so we got to sit down and do like an update so it's basically from start to finish how this independent female filmmaker is bringing this film to life her fight to bring this really really great story to life um, and I'm documenting the process. Um, and, uh, yeah. And those are, those are the two things. What else, Leah? Is there anything else that I should pitch? No, I think that's, I think that's it. And the, the film that he's talking about. So I wrote the script loosely, very loosely, because I'm not an insane person who sees people, uh, imaginary people. Um, it's very loosely based on my life as a film projectionist. So one summer I lived on an island inside of a movie theater as the movie theater manager and projectionist. And it was the last summer for film. And so I wrote about this woman, takes place in Italy. I wrote about this woman who is going through the worst heartbreak of her life. And she gets life in dating advice from her imaginary friend, Italian film icon, Marcello Mastriani who is also in love with her. And we have some talent attached already. Uh, we have some funding in place already. And it'll be the second feature film that I will have directed, unless a different, unless funding comes in for something else that I'm working on to be shot in France. So trying to make dreams happen. That's awesome. Well, I am very much, I mean, I, as I said, I've, I just, just got into your podcast. So I'm very excited to see what you guys do going forward with that. I am very excited to see what you guys do next. Um, I, especially, you know, with everything you guys have been talking about today, it just gets me more excited to see more of your work. And um, yeah, where can, uh, where can people find you on like all the social medias? So Twitter, um, I'm at Leah Welch, 19, one nine on Instagram. I'm Leah.st.marie. Yeah, and I'm on I'm on Twitter, and I think it's just the Angel Murphy or One Racing the Sun. I don't really know. I, it's like 
One Racing the Sun. It's One Racing the Sun. So it's all those words spelled out. O-N-E-R-A-C-I-N-G, the sun. And you can just hit me <laughs> up on Twitter. <laughs> all, of the, uh, all of the links will be down, down below so people can click on them if they want to get to your pages. Very cool. But seriously, everybody, make sure to check out Pitch, the podcast hosted by these two wonderful people. And also make sure to check out Spoonful of Sugar on Shudder right now. Seriously, you got to experience yeah. this movie. And please, if you when you see it, please leave a comment down below and tell us what you thought. And then, of course, I can share it to Leah and we can talk about it some more. And maybe just maybe we could do a full podcast episode talking about the movie from beginning to end. And maybe Leah would want to come back for that. We'll see. We'll see. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> but until next time, everybody, I am Brett Parker. That is Leah. St. Marie, and that is Angel Murphy. And this has been a special edition of the Dissect the Film Podcast. We'll see y'all again next time. Bye! Thanks,